Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as senior minister here at Knox. I want to add my word of welcome to what Nick said earlier, especially if you're visiting here for the first time or have just been coming for a few weeks. We trust that you will feel at home with us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we praise you for being a God who is always speaking a new word to us, a word that you promise will renew us and the whole world. Lord, you are changing water into wine all around. And we thank you that you promise to make all things new. You call us to be part of your renewal and your creativity. Forgive us for the ways we haven't even noticed what you're doing. Holy Spirit, renew our minds. Open our eyes. Help us to look for your presence. Speak your guidance and wisdom to our hearts today, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the past month, we've been looking at the invitations of Jesus. Jesus loves to invite people to get close to him. He is inviting. People are drawn to Jesus. That was true then, and it's true now. John says that because in Jesus we find God's glory, that is why people find Jesus so inviting. In Jesus is located the substance of God's love, God's truth. So we've seen Jesus invite other people to believe in him, to believe in him as Messiah and as Savior, to see him as the source of living water, to end all deep thirst, to see him as the bread of life, to satisfy all our hunger. We've seen him also extend the invitation to a tax collector and to a Samaritan woman, people on the fringes of society. His invitation is for everyone. But here in John chapter 2, Jesus is the one who receives the invitation. And it's not where we might expect to find him. In John's gospel, he tells us about seven signs Jesus gave to help us understand who he is. Now the wedding at Cana is where the first sign takes place. And we pick up this story after Jesus calls his first five disciples in the first chapter of John's Gospel. Nathaniel, an upright man, we're told, sneers at the place where Jesus comes from when he is being called. Nazareth, he asks. Can anything good come from Nazareth? But Nathaniel changes his mind, and right at the end of the chapter, Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That precedes our reading this morning. That's what we are led into. Jesus promises to open heaven up for us. Nothing less than that. And yet, if you're like me, this story seems pretty far removed from angels and glory and heavenly visions. A few years ago, I did a funeral for a man I'd never met. I knew his sister, though, and she had told me a lot about him. So I drove from Guelph to Toronto, feeling like I knew what to expect. The memorial service wasn't in a church or a funeral home. It was in a legion hall, the one on Weston Road, just south of Eglinton. 
When I got there, people were sitting at tables and they were drinking. No one told me it was going to be an open bar funeral. That was a first for me. Who knows how long they'd been drinking for, but they were noisy when I arrived, so I figured a while. They kept making noise even when I started speaking. Most of the crowd didn't look over. I cut a page out of my sermon the moment I walked into the room. As I preached, I cut two more. When I was done, it felt like no one had listened. But on the way out, an older man, clutching a bottle of Budweiser, stopped me and said, the good book. That's what we really need on a day like this, the good book. I took that as encouragement. Maybe someone had listened. I imagine Jesus walked into something similar in Cana, but he took a different approach. The village of Cana was about 10 kilometers north of Nazareth in the heart of the Galilee region. You get a sense of its location from this map. You can see in the north the Sea of Galilee, and at the top of the Sea of Galilee is the village of Bethsaida, Some of the disciples were from there, the disciples that Jesus called. And then Nazareth to the southwest and Cana due west from the Sea of Galilee. And you get a sense of its distance from Jerusalem too. It was the first stop as Jesus begins his travels with his new disciples. And it's no accident that he chose to start there. Cana was about as far as you could get from Jerusalem without leaving Israel. But it was distant in other ways, too. Galilee was where uprisings against the Roman Empire usually started. It was a bad neighborhood. Good Jews, like Nathaniel, looked down on it. Galilee was a long ways from the temple in Jerusalem and the respectable life that it represented. And so this wedding in Cana was no polite society affair. It was an all-out party. And the master of ceremonies implies that the guests had already had too much to drink. Apparently, they were going to need another 120 to 160 gallons of wine, or something like 900 bottles, to get them through to the end. And yet, this raucous party is where Jesus begins to reveal his glory. That's how verse 11 puts it. This is where God shows up. This is where things start to change. Why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus turn water into wine here? In other Gospels, he's reported healing sick people in his first recorded miracles. And here in John's Gospel, three of the seven signs that John tells us about involve Jesus healing someone. That might make more sense to us. Healing the sick as opposed to making a lot of wine for people who didn't need any more to drink. We all have different experiences of alcohol, different backgrounds. In my family, if my grandfather wanted to celebrate something, if he wanted to throw a party, he would have reached for the 7-Up. He would have said, this is how you party like a Presbyterian, (laughs) with 7-Up, maybe ginger ale. When I used to run into people Church people at the LCBO in Guelph, I like to say, I'm here buying the communion, communion wine. What are you doing here? I can't make that joke anymore because Knox only uses grape juice. That's probably a good thing because some people did not get that joke. 
But you know, the Bible speaks mostly in positive terms about alcohol. Wine was important in ancient Israel. It signified God's blessing and prosperity. For example, Psalm 104 says that God made wine to gladden human hearts. On the other hand, drunkenness is called a sin. It's portrayed negatively as leading to a loss of self-control and to behavior that dishonors God. In the Gospels, God's coming into the world is compared to a wedding feast, and there was always wine at weddings. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul compares the relationship between God and his people to a marriage in which the church is the bride of Christ. So John is making some broader connections here, but he also wants us to pay attention to the little things in this story. First, Jesus is part of the neighborhood. It's Jesus who receives the invitation this time. He's invited to a wedding, and he's only too happy to join in as a guest. There's no church committee meeting or mountaintop retreat to keep him from getting involved. He's not front stage center either. He's behind the scenes. He is present to people, but not productive in the way you might expect. Not preaching or teaching or in the spotlight. His presence is maybe a rebuke to our obsession with productivity. Strangely, Jesus here is not the one to initiate what comes next. It's his mother who asks for help. She's pushing for something. She wants him to intervene in a certain way. But Jesus says, no, it's not the right time. There's tension there. But her boldness seems to prompt Jesus to act. And then... Jesus lends his assistance to the father of the bride whose legal responsibility it would have been in that culture to ensure there was enough wine for everyone for the duration of the wedding. Terrible shame would have come on him and his daughter, on the father of the bride and the bride, if the wine had run out. So Jesus cares about all of this and takes the time to help. And as he helps, he sends a message. He makes an impression that seems a little crazy to us. Galilean men knew how to drink. You start with the best wine, you make a good impression, and then you move on to the inferior stuff, when people aren't as likely to notice the taste any longer. You will be judged on the first sip, and then you can cut corners after that, right? It only makes sense. You have a limited number of bottles of the best wine. And so you're going to save them for the right moment, for the right people. But here Jesus delivers a surprise. When there's no longer any point in doing so, he goes ahead and turns water into excessive quantities of the best possible wine. He sets a tone of extravagant, even foolish generosity. He's pointing to the kind of complete transformation he makes possible and to the abundance of what he can provide. In the end, Jesus will embody that change. He will embody that hope in his death and resurrection. So Jesus turns water into wine and it goes pretty much unnoticed. Only a few servants, his mother, and the disciples saw what had happened. 
but they had seen it. They had caught a glimpse of something new, something incredible. The glory of God showed up in the most inappropriate place among people who couldn't be expected to appreciate it, and the wine pretty much went to waste. Yet some still put their faith in Jesus. From water to wine, this is a new beginning that wasn't going to make the headlines, but it will change everything. It starts in Cana. It starts in the middle of nowhere. It starts so small. It starts in everyday things, a party, some water, and some wine. And then it leads to something extraordinary. Remember how the story started in verse 1? And on the third day. What happens most famously on the third day for those of us who are Christians? Resurrection. The first sign of Easter hope is revealed when Jesus showed up at a party and more or less invisibly played a role that doesn't make much sense to us at all. Jesus offers the hope of abundant life. And we need that hope today because we can't make it on our own. We need God's love and mercy because we are not so good at loving him back. We most consistently turn away from him and pursue our own interests. We are quick to disregard him. And so our love runs dry because we try to satisfy our desires apart from the Lord. And so we find it hard to love each other also. We are given people to love, right, in our families, and we choose people to love as our friends. And yet we still fail to love even that relatively small group, not to mention all the other people we meet along the way. In this city, I don't know about you, but I find it really hard to be patient. It was hard this morning in Toronto traffic, even on a Sunday morning. It's hard waiting on the phone for customer service. We have this expression, right? We say that our patience is running out. It's hard to be patient in the big things of life, too, when our plans are not working out, when the disappointments seem to pile up. It's hard to be patient for the right job, the right relationship, the right place to live, to wait for God to show up in those challenges when it's not obvious that he's with us. The good news is that God's patience with us never runs out. That he promises that his love will never run dry. He is always working, always with us, even if imperceptibly at times. The love of Jesus can sustain us forever. And he brings that extraordinary love into our hearts and into our homes when we invite him in. If you're worried now or ever that the goodness in your life will run out, that you will lose what matters most to you, God promises to make it new all over again. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. It won't always be easy. And we're going to come to that, the harder invitation, as we head towards Lent. But when you turn to God in faith, he will provide. When Jesus is with you, you are not empty. 
not in the deepest places. You are filled with his grace, his presence, his power. Water to wine. So listen to the advice of the mother of Jesus when she says, do whatever he tells you. What is he telling you? A couple of years ago, I was walking through downtown Guelph on a Friday night. It was late, and there were crowds of people in the streets, all kinds of university students, lots of people spilling out of the bars. I saw two people coming towards me who didn't seem to belong. They were older, and they were handing out water bottles. And they would stop and talk to people as they handed out these water bottles. I approached them. It was curious. I was curious, and I asked them what they were doing. They said they were trying to help people, giving out water. It was a hot summer night. They said sometimes people needed help, and they would help them. They mentioned their church, and they said once in a while we get to talk to Jesus. We get to talk about Jesus with people. And I found that so moving, so compelling. I can tell you that is not the way to grow a church. You won't go to a conference and get that advice about church growth. Most of the people they were handing out water bottles to didn't even say thank you. They probably wouldn't remember the conversation the next morning. But isn't that how Jesus works? Not in the obvious big ways, but most of all behind the scenes. He does not force himself on us. He invites us in. Then he takes the little things, the ordinary things, and makes them extraordinary. At Knox, we have just begun our process for choosing new elders. And so with that in mind, can I ask you to pray with us over the next month especially, and to pay attention to these little things? If you're a member, you can nominate people for eldership. We need you to do that. You got an email detailing how that process works this past week. Would you pray and would you pay attention to what God is doing in our church community, to who you could nominate? Or maybe Jesus is working on transforming your openness to serving as an elder. It might not be in your plans for the future, but pay attention to the one who works amazing change in our hearts like water into wine. And if you're not a member, maybe the change of heart is your willingness to join the church in that way, to make a public commitment. We'll be offering a membership class, as you heard earlier, later this month. Maybe the greatest way that God brings transformation into our lives is by giving us the gift of faith and then calling us into a community of people who are seeking to follow Jesus. On Wednesday night, about 30 of us gathered here at the church to prepare for the start of Alpha. I was struck by one story about someone who had attended Alpha in the past, not someone at Knox. It was an older man who did not seem to be enjoying Alpha at all. He didn't participate in the discussion. He came across as grumpy and disinterested. He didn't contribute anything positive to the whole gathering. Other people found him frustrating. One night, he was asked why he was coming to Alpha. He decided to share, and he talked about how he looked forward to Alpha every week, how he was really lonely and did not have friends, but Alpha was something 
that brought joy to his heart. And he admitted that he needed God in his life. And so he received Jesus as his Lord and Savior at the end of the Alpha Course and became part of the church that held it. Does that kind of story surprise us? Once again, as we see in John 2, Jesus works his transformation behind the scenes. Is there someone in your life who you can't imagine changing? If there is, then picture yourself as the servant who takes the wine to the master of the banquet. How could you share the abundant life you have in Christ? Is there someone God has put on your mind? Well, today would be a good day to invite them to take a step towards faith. Hear again what the mother of Jesus says. If you want this transformation, do whatever he tells you. Are you listening for the voice of Jesus? If you want to get to know him better, come and see. Maybe you've been waiting for a reason to join a home church here at Knox. Why wait any longer? You could talk to me or Nick or Tamika about that after the service. Maybe you realize that Alpha would be good for you, not for a friend, but for yourself. Will you hear this story in John chapter 2 as Jesus inviting you into something new? Inviting you to follow him. Jesus always issues that invitation. Come to me, trust me, accept my love, he says. And he is the one who can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power at work within us. He wants to fill us with all of his goodness so that we can grasp how wide and high and deep and long is the love of Christ. That is his invitation to you and to all of us today. Amen. I want to invite you to take the next couple of minutes to reflect on two questions. First of all, in what ways can you see Jesus working behind the scenes to bring transformation into your life and the lives of those around you? And then how are you paying attention to that and joining him in that?